Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. So today we are being very spontaneous. Um, I had a friend that told me I needed to meet this man that started the Iris Wellness Group back early in the summer before we traveled to Scotland. And so um, Sean scheduled a meeting for today and he's just going to tell me a little bit about the group. And while he's here, I thought we might as well record and see if this conversation could be helpful. And it already sounds inspiring. We haven't really talked too much, but um, but I'll give you a tiny bit of background because I've only known Sean for about five minutes. <laughs> Let him share his story. Um, but just a real nutshell, this is Sean Owen, and he is the founder and CEO of the Iris Wellness Group. And I'll let him tell us when it launched and then started and about his own history of addiction and recovery, which is amazing. Um, And for those of you who don't know, there's kind of an ongoing debate in the literature among professionals about, you know, whether it would be more helpful to have addiction therapists be in recovery themselves or whether they should just have their training and maybe have no real experience themselves personally. And so whenever you get someone who has both, it's really cool. So, um, hi, Sean. Hello. Oh, I have to also laugh and say that my office manager told Sean to bring like pastries or something. And I was like, oh man, I wish we had something healthy. And before he came and excuse me, and then he shows up and he has a bunch of fruit salad along with the muffins. So I was like, wow, he's being true to True to himself. So uh, true to his philosophy. So, um, so yeah, do you want to just tell us a little bit about yourself and the group? Yeah. So, um, yeah, thank you for, you know, having me and doing this impromptu um, recording. Um, I guess for me to start out, I would like to talk about a little bit of my story and Mm -hmm. why I do what I do and what's my motivators and drive and passion and all that kind of stuff. Yes, I'd love to hear that. Yeah, so um, so my journey is um, it's been a, a roller coaster ride. Um, so for the for most of my life, um, I've been impacted by mental health and addiction mm-hmm. in one way or another. Whether it was my father, my father's been in active addiction my entire life. Mm. He struggled and been in and out of prison. Um, wasn't there when I was young. My parents got divorced when I was two years old. Wow. So I, I grew up in that kind of environment and it was an extremely broken environment, very unstable. Um, a lot of challenges growing up, a lot of abuse, physical, mental, um, even spiritual, I would say. Mm. And it, it just became a challenging environment for me to grow up in and thrive in. Mm-hmm. And early on, I, very, I, I developed what I call as a victim mentality, mm. um, just struggled with my own mindset of, of being, why, why do I have this life? And why did I come into this world? Why are my parents like this? Why is my brother like this? Um, like, why me? This yeah, isn't fair. Exactly. Like, I, I didn't feel I felt like the cards I were dealt were just really bad and like, this wasn't fair for me at all. And it isn't fair, but mm-hmm. I guess you could tease <laughs> out when that becomes an, a, a healthy recognition and grief and acknowledgement of all the yeah. pain you've been through versus mm-hmm. getting stuck in a victim self-pity. Yes, exactly. Place. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it, it, in the beginning, it was it was all a victim mentality and I didn't know any other way. Like, mm-hmm. It was just normal to me. And um, growing up, I, I just experienced a lot of challenges. We moved almost every single year, mm. whether we were getting evicted, just struggling, um, grew up extremely poor. 
and didn't really have much going on. Um, I moved 21 times by the time I was 18 years old. Oh my goodness. So just chronic chaos, transition, adjustments, Mm -hmm. all that. Absolutely. Oh, (laughs) the whole gamut. So, um, abusive stepfathers and abusive older brother that was extremely abusive to me growing up. What was the age difference? Um, four years. Okay. So it was a four years and he was the, the male figure in the home. Um, he was the, the role model, so to speak. He took on the patriarch role. Or yeah. The, oh, my. Yes, yes. So, you know, that that was a big thing. And um, I, I contribute a lot of that relationship to what in return created the, you know, helped to manifest my disconnection um, with life, with myself, with who I was, with, re, you know, with reality in a lot of ways because it just started to distort my perceptions on life. Mm -hmm. And um, it just only expanded for a long time. And once again, I just didn't know, you know, I didn't know that this wasn't normal, like, Mm -hmm. because this is the world I came into. Yeah. Um, And I would have glimpses of normalcy, I guess, through like friends and their families. And all it really did in return was make me believe that you know life isn't fair once again right yeah and so my brother was actually the first one to introduce me to drugs and alcohol the first time i ever had any experience with drugs i was 11 years old oh my goodness yeah my brother got me high smoking weed and he thought it was hilarious to get 11 year old high and so that that was my first experience but growing up until then that was the first time i was ever accepted by my older brother so you know i i um I realized that being like a pivotal moment in my my experience because I had found something that I could relate with him on mm-hmm. and I felt something I found something that I thought was cool that these guys were doing like oh yes like I can finally fit in yeah. because I'm always seeking connection and mm-hmm. and my tribe right I didn't realize that was a thing but it's part of human nature is to seek out connection in that and that and I found that in in that moment. I do remember that. Like I remember it vividly sitting on next to a trailer park in a trailer park next to a trailer and doing that on the side of the house and him and his friend thinking it was hilarious. Wow. Um, so that that's where it all started. Yeah, <laughs> that makes so much sense. And I'm glad you're sharing some of the vulnerabilities or needs or or voids that mm-hmm. made you susceptible to you know, this brother who hardly ever gives me any positive, positive attention yeah. is suddenly like spending time with me and mm-hmm. I'm in the in group and I have more a sense of belonging or approval. And I guess I'll do whatever I have to do to continue getting that. Yes. Yes. So that that was the start of a long road for me. Um, uh, first time I ever did any other like hard drugs, like opiates. I was 13 years old. First time I ever did cocaine. I was 14. Alcohol, mm-hmm. 14. So it just became this thing that it just became increasingly more important that I do things like that rather than do good in school and, you know, mm-hmm. focus on healthy habits. I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. So mm-hmm. I was naturally falling into it and I didn't know anything about um, really being um, prone to the genetic component of like my father being a drug addict mm-hmm. and it passing down so easily from father to son. Mm-hmm. And um, so I would see my brother would do these things, but he he never seemed to have like an issue like I did. Hmm. I became very uh, infatuated, very addicted to the stuff very quickly. Oh, wow. Yeah. So and, and it just led to all kinds of behavior problems and a lot of issues and, and just more traumatizing experiences. Um, embarrassments, more, you know, more trauma that, you know, just really affected me negatively, um, getting kicked out of schools and only progressing. And then, um, actually eventually even moving in with my dad because my mother, I was too much for my mother to handle at the time. Mm. Um, and, um, we never had any resources to like get any help. So I never had any therapy, um, never went to treatment at a young age, um, <clears throat> just got shipped off. <laughs> wow. And that was a great thing for me for a little while because I, I was a boy that always wanted his father and finally got it right. <clears throat> mm. And then I started to see the reality of my father. Um, so that turned into another nightmare, another situation where my dad, we were moving all around the country and I didn't know anything about this geographical cure they talk about uh-huh. sometimes. And that's what he was doing. He was trying to outrun his addictions 
but anywhere you go, there there you are. Oh, so he thought that moving geographically mm-hmm. would help him get sober, and it never worked. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Now, were you... Um, when you said something about, you know, you kind of wanted to live with your father, did you mm-hmm. kind of idealize him and think, oh, yeah. yeah, it was going to be way different than it really was? Absolutely. Yeah. I painted this grand picture of what our relationship would be like, what he would be like. And it was the complete opposite. Wow. Um, and so that, that was, that was like the cherry on the top of the cake for me mm-hmm. when, cause I lived with him for about two years from 16 to 18 years old. And by the time I was 18 years old living with him, we were living in a hotel down in Panama City Beach on our like fourth move. We were like, we went to Vermont, went to California, and then went to Florida. And so when we were down there, things got really bad with his addiction. And I didn't know that he was um, using crack and heroin. And we got jobs down there and I would get locked out of my hotel every single weekend every pay period I would get locked out because and your dad wasn't paying the bills no because he was in there smoking crack oh. yeah. yeah and he would kick me out like he would just lock me out and he wouldn't answer the door I could bang on the door or anything yeah what did you do um I just developed friends in the community and around that time I started finding more crutches again um weed and alcohol so for a while there it was there was um there wasn't as much substance abuse, but from 16 to 18, there was a gap. Mm. Um, and then I started using marijuana and alcohol and started partying with the locals. And I mean, as you can imagine, Panama City is basically a party scene from yeah. spring break until fall. Right. And then it's just a dead ghost season. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, that, that was a really rough space. And, and during that time, I just feel like my void that I was experiencing just just really expanded to like the largest of my journey. Um, I just felt so empty and disconnected. And, um, and I used to be an artist and, um, like I would write all the time. I would do like poetry and music and stuff like that. And that was like always my outlet. And, um, I was really into hip hop and stuff like that. And I, I like won um, talent scouts and shows and wow. Yeah. So I was really into that. So um, you found some healthy um, outlets and coping mechanisms and yeah. also abilities and gifts through mm-hmm. art, music, poetry. Yes. How cool. Yeah. So I had that during that whole period growing up, um, which if I didn't have that, I, you know, I don't know what would have happened. Um, who knows, right? That gave you a little bit of hope or something yeah. or some positive feedback from teachers? Yeah, it gave me a release. It gave me positive feedback because people were interested in that. They were like, really, um, I actually like won some like free studio time in the same studio that Genuine, the R&B singer started at. Mm, like, wow. So I, I was like doing things like that and I was getting some recognition. And then um, um, obviously like things took a turn for the worse with my father. And um, I just got to a real bottom there mm-hmm. emotionally. And I, I decided to leave. And when I left, I left all my art, all my notebooks, everything. And um, I never came back. I never came back to get the stuff. And you still don't have it to this day? I still day. don't have it to this day. Oh. And it was like a piece of me died in that yeah. in that time. And I, I re- basically released that, that part of me and I stopped using those coping skills. And when I got back, I was um, 18 going on 19 and everything just, you know, everybody was like partying. My friends were partying. People were doing that. So I just jumped in full floor. And the next um, six years, I didn't take a sober breath. Oh, my goodness. So from age 18 to 24? So 19 to 25. 19 to 25. Probably actually probably 18 to 25. Um, So seven years didn't take a sober breath at all. Um, and it just, it just, they talk about addiction being progressive. Mm-hmm. It was so progressive that it was unreal. Um, within like the first couple years I started moving in towards, um, it was alcohol and party drugs and it was just, you know, off to the races and it just started to develop into a beast and, and then the, those things stopped working. So I move on to something bigger and better and move from, um, marijuana and party drugs to, alcohol and cocaine and then from alcohol and cocaine to opiates and when i found opiates it was it was game over because that was what my dad was addicted to and i became so addicted so quickly 
that it just, I mean, it felt like it snatched my soul in my life and just took me on a ride for the next like four years. Oh my goodness. Um, and um, so during that time, I, I started to um, just, it, it progressed to the point of becoming an IV user. Um, wow. So I was a cocaine and heroin addict during that period. And um, a lot of a lot of trauma during that time, a lot of loss, losing friends, you know, mm-hmm. trying to resuscitate them, bring them back and they were gone. Um, a lot of pain, a lot of challenge that time, losing friends, burning bridges, um, getting arrested. I was arrested um, the last year before I actually got sober. I was arrested four times. Oh, my goodness. I couldn't stay out of jail. And it was mostly because I was stealing to um, feed my Support habits. Support your habit, yeah. 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 And then, of course, like you can't once you're on probation, you can't use successfully. So Mm -hmm. I would use and then um, I would, you know, and I always always try to push it to the last three days. And I'm like, okay, I'll quit three days before I go into my probation visit. Of course, I couldn't because it was just out of control. The withdrawal and the the cravings. Yeah, all of it. So um, I would I I went on the run. I went on the run for a while and um, running from the police yeah, and the the probation police. officers. Yeah. Oh man, that yeah. must have been stressful. It was. It was very stressful, and um, I was riding around in a friend's car. The repo man was looking for the car. We didn't have insurance on the car. Oh. I had warrants for my arrest. I'm pretty sure he had warrants for his arrest. I was homeless, um, and I was beaten into a state of um, reasonable reasonableness. And I had a really unique experience, um, actually. And is this what the beaten into the state of reasonableness is? Or is there something or can you explain that? Or are you about yeah. to? No, I can. I can. So um, I had to get to a place where I had reached an absolute bottom, mm-hmm. emotionally, spiritually, physically, mentally, the whole thing. And I had gotten to a place where um, I was ready to take my own life. Mm-hmm. I, I, I was. There was a lot of nights there. I was comp, um, contemplating, contemplating that, yeah. it. Um, and and um, I mean, I, I even sat there with a revolver in my lap one night and was was thinking about doing it. It was shortly after I lost my best friend on my couch, and mm. I was just in a place of just absolute loss and disconnection. And I, I wanted to end it all. I don't blame you. That sounds like a horrible way to live, and you didn't know a way out of it. No, not at that time. I had gotten so deep into it that I thought it was the only normal thing. Um, so, so beaten into a yeah. state of being reasonable, not literally beaten up, but just yes. like the hard knocks and mm-hmm. the disappointment and the trauma just took you to your knees. And Absolutely. What y'all call hitting bottom in the... Mm-hmm in the addiction literature to yeah. where you're like, I'm, I'm ready to just take my own life or something has to change. Yes. Yes. 100%. Wow. So it was, it was tough during that time. And, um, I don't always share this in my story, but, um, I had a really unique experience, um, with psychedelics right before I got sober. Hmm. And, um, I had this really profound spiritual experience while on psychedelics wow um and what it was so interesting because i remember it vividly where i was at a i was at a local bar and i was with some people and i i actually took mushrooms and mm-hmm. um it was it was the first time in my life that i could like see my, see my own path mm-hmm. i could see where i was going and i could see other people's intentions around me um mm-hmm. It was just a lot of interesting things that happened that night. um, Like clarity and hope and mm -hmm. almost like a vision. Yeah. So I had some like real, yeah, it was very, very clear on what was going on. But what came from it was I started having this intrusive thought that if I didn't get sober in two weeks, I would die. Um, I literally had two weeks to do, to change my life. Wow. And the interesting thing about it is even when I look back, cause I started writing a story of like, I can see clearly now where I can see where, you know, my higher power God was mm-hmm. working in my life mm-hmm. and that I didn't, I didn't see it at the time, but I can see it now. Um, because there was times where I literally was overdosing, turned black and blue, purple. There was no Narcan at the time. Mm. And I remember getting ripped out of the car and I hit the ground and they just said I was struck sober and I immediately went into withdrawals. It was like the drugs were just pulled out of my system somehow after I had stopped breathing and turned purple. So it's like something I, I supernatural mm-hmm. detoxed you or something. Yeah, I still do not know to this day. Wow. What had happened? Like there's there's no they didn't understand it. My father was there actually because we ended up using together. 
um, which was horrible, right? Right. <laughs> oh my goodness. So yeah, I mean, there's so much, there's so much details into that. But when I got into that space and um, I knew that it was serious, that's where I decided to get help. And when I finally got help, I didn't have insurance, I didn't have anything. So um, I knew that there's a little secret that people <laughs> told me that if I just, if I took um, a bunch of Xanax and I took a bunch of alcohol, even because the hospitals and the detox centers without insurance, they won't take you for heroin or cocaine. So you needed to be sedated because yeah. your heart rate was so well, high? No, no, no. So I needed to be on a substance and say that I, I needed to make a white oh, lie. I see. Say that I was detoxing off of Xanax and alcohol so that they would accept me. So I took a bunch of Xanax and I drank a a couple beers and I went to the hospital and I said, I'm going into withdrawal for Xanax and alcohol. So they couldn't refuse treatment. Oh, wow. You found a loophole, which is good because you knew you needed some treatment. (laughs) Yeah. It was the first time in my life I was lying for good. Yeah. I lie for, you know, all these other reasons. That's a good distinction. Yeah. (laughs) I was lying for good. And, um, so I, I went in there and, um, and it was just, it was such an interesting experience. Um, just that whole point of getting sober and everything like that. Um, when I was, I had to turn myself into jail, obviously, but I went into detox and the first guy that ever sold me a Roxy pill was in there. Um, and he literally died one week out of being out of detox. He said he was, he was good. He's got this. He's going to do great. One week later, they found him in his apartment and his truck um, passed out from overdose. Doesn't that happen a lot where people think after rehab or after prison or some kind of situation where they can't use that they go back into using wholeheartedly at the same level and they don't realize that they they needed to build up again a terrible buildup but mm-hmm. you can't go back to that level and yeah. is that probably how he died yeah oh yeah i guarantee it i guarantee it and um it's i mean it's so sad and unfortunate Heartbreaking. But yeah, a lot of people die that way um yeah they're not trying to and it's that themselves. classic thing of like they think that they're good they're like oh i'm detoxed off this stuff i got this and then they go back right back into the old behaviors um, it's very sad. heartbreaking. So many losses of great people mm-hmm. that could have reached their potential if they had gotten help earlier. Or and, and thank goodness, you're using this whole traumatic story to mm-hmm. bring good and, and yeah. hopefully prevent other people from so much of the trauma and heartbreak and loss that you've had. Absolutely, absolutely. So oh. yeah, so that that's kind of my story of the addiction part. Getting sober is where all the, you know, the new opportunities came about. Like it was, it was such a powerful thing when I, like when I say that I feel like my story was divinely inspired and like I had those intrusive thoughts to say, Hey, you know, you have to get sober. You're going to die. Like I believed it because it wasn't going anywhere. Mm. And there was this like knowing the entire time in my addiction that I just knew that once I was finally ready, I was going to stop. I was going to stop. I was going to give up and I was going to go. And it was that day and I knew and I I went in and I had that sense of emergency and I turned myself in and um, and I ended up going to jail and turning myself into jail. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was just a wild experience. And um, at the time, I was 25 years old and there was a state funded program called the Extension in Marietta, Georgia. And they my mom and an alumni that I knew um, kept going up to them and saying, Hey, like my son needs help. He needs help. And they were like, well, we don't have a success rate with 25 year olds. Um, he's just going to have to do his time and then come out and interview when he's done. We don't have a high success rate. We need some, we need him to be the one that's initiating this to make sure that he's willing. Right. Um, that program was like an old school kind of 12 step type of program. But at the time when I was there, I had the highest success rates um, of long-term recovery in the nation. Wow. Yeah, it was, it, was, it was such a powerful program. But one of the requirements is that you're a homeless man and you don't have insurance and that you're, you're absolutely at your bottom. Mm. Um, and I think that's one of the reasons why they did so well with their outcomes. Um, but being in that program, meaning because everybody was at bottom. Yeah. So they're ready to change uh-huh. a lot of treatment centers. I think there are success rates and outcome studies which show like, like 10 to 15% sometimes it's wow. very low, but when you're dealing with insurance based treatment, a lot of times you're getting people that aren't at the bottom yet. Mm. So they're not really fully engaged or maybe it's their first time. There's also studies that say it takes seven times for somebody to fully get commit it, to it, commit to it. Yeah. Yeah, wow. it's wild. So, 
Yeah. So the extension in Marietta, Georgia, they mm-hmm. turned your mom down when she called on your behalf. Three, three to three to five times for sure. Wow. Yeah. So she kept calling and you mm-hmm. weren't the one initiating. I wasn't able to. Because you were in jail. Yeah. I was in jail. Oh, <laughs> what a shame. Yeah. yeah. So on my court day, um, it's interesting because the, the, the owner of that place, the director of that place actually became my counselor later on. But he, I didn't know this at the time, but he had an office directly across the street from the courthouse in the Marietta Square. Really? Um, so unannounced, on my court date, I'm going in there. I'm like, oh, this is it. This is over with. I'm done. <laughs> uh, there's no there's no hope. I'm just going to do the rest of my time. Um, I'm in this cell, and I'm shackled, and I'm in my little um, orange jumpsuit. Yeah. And this guy walks in. And I never met him in my life, but he was wearing this very, like, bright pink shirt, khaki pants, really dressed nice. Um, and he, I swear, it looked like he floated into the room. Wow. Uh, he was like one of those guys. He just had such big energy. Ah. And, um, just a, such a such a great guy. I mean, he's won like all these awards for like the good work that he's done in the community. With addiction and, treatment. With addiction Amazing. Treatment. Yeah. Um, and he comes in and I'm just like, oh, who is this guy? Yeah. This <laughs> uh, guy's somebody. I yeah, can tell. Yeah. And he said, he said, um, he asked me a couple of questions. He asked me who I was. And then he asked me if I loved myself. And I said, yeah, I think so. And he just looked at me dead in the eyes and said, bullshit. He said, if you loved yourself, you wouldn't be in this situation. And I said, okay. I was like, yeah, you got me. I was like, you're right. And cause that my, my first response is always the lie. And, he, and I told him, I said, you know what? Actually, I hate myself. Mm. I hate what's going on. I hate the situation. That I'm mm. in. And I was like, and you know, I, I, had, I was probably the first time I had ever gotten honest about a response like that. I got to show you something. Keep, <laughs> keep, I think uh, just to prove it, I yeah. have a podcast idea started here that was called like why addicts hate themselves. Ooh, yeah. And I'm going to see <laughs> if it's in this note so that you can, yeah, look at this. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Why most addicts hate themselves. Mm, yeah. And then Don't Mess With Fire was meant to um, talk about, you know, it's just not worth messing with drugs and alcohol. Just don't yeah. no, <laughs> don't yeah. start. Don't but, do it. <laughs> but I, I joke that that pile that you can see in real life mm-hmm. is, is I call, say I have all these podcast episodes stuck in the birth canal. Yeah, and, yeah. and that's the stack right wow. there. <laughs> oh, okay, nice. So I, on I the just, top of the stack. Yeah, too. it's on the top. That was yeah. a very recent, like, I got to do a podcast on this. Because, yeah, people really want to do well and they mm-hmm. want to use their gifts, but they don't know that they have gifts or they have so much trauma they're trying to numb and it's just so heartbreaking for every you know transformational inspiring story like yours where someone uses all this and comes out of it and makes a huge difference yeah there's you know 99 or more of people that never could come out or Mm -hmm. you know battle addiction till they're 60 or 80, you yeah. know? Oh, yeah. Anyway, sorry. I totally no, yeah, interrupted yeah. you. I just got ah. so excited about that. Yeah, so you good. hated yourself. You couldn't, well, you you didn't love yourself because yeah. you didn't like the way you had been living or. Exactly. Yeah. I was, uh, I was completely empty at the time. Mm. I was lost and I, I felt so, so dark in that time. Like, you know, I, mm. I look at it now and like even seeing him, like he was so full of light and vibrant and bright. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's like, I believe human nature, we're either moving towards that darkness and negativity and disconnection or we're moving towards that light and positivity and happiness and growth and prosperity. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's like a scale that we're on. We're always moving in those areas. And there's always a version of myself at each one of those spots on that scale. Mm. And it's important for me to, you know, recognize that and and, and recognize that I am the darkness as I am the light too. Mm. And as I'm moving through it, of embracing my dark side or my shadow and moving towards like the best possible version of myself. Right. Constantly. Yeah. And it's not about like ignoring or, or, or trying to sweep it under the rug as so many people do. It's mm-hmm. about fully embracing it, transforming it and using it. Um, yes. To propel you forward. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> so. I love that. Well, one of my prior episodes on addiction was called Understanding Addiction with Compassion. Mm-hmm. And it was with a yoga instructor. And I, I don't want to jump the gun. I know yeah. you're a yoga instructor, <laughs> a meditator, and, and 
meditating meditation teacher and all that stuff, but she had an addiction history. And so she shares, and we just talk about the importance of being compassionate with yourself when you have addiction and then also being compassionate with others. Yeah. Um, Oh yeah. So, and I can tell that you learned a lot of compassion from that man at the extension. So anyway, I, I, yeah. I keep side, oops, <laughs> no, I keep fine. sidetracking, um, you on the story. So, no, so what happened from there? So, yeah. So he came in and he asked me those questions and then he asked me, um, what am I willing to do mm. to get out of the situation and better your life? And I said, I'm willing to do anything. Um, and I, I meant that at the time. I didn't know what anything meant. And there's part of me that I was willing to say anything as well to get out of that situation. Whatever I needed to say, I was going to say. Um, and it, it was such a powerful experience for me because, I mean, he came out of there. He knew the judge. He knew all the people. Um, my, he told them that he's come, he said, he's coming with me. And I could tell my probation officer was pissed off because now she had to process all this paperwork. Mm. And they got me out that day. The most interesting part about it was... I don't know how ethical it is, <laughs> but at that time, that program, they didn't even have a bed open. They didn't have a bed open. Oh. So they cleared, cleared out this storage room and turned it into a new Oh my bed goodness. Space. I love that. I think that's the most ethical part of the whole story is really? that they made room for you because yeah. <laughs> the big picture, getting someone help they need matters more than whether it's a technical bed or a storage yeah. closet. I exactly. love that. Yeah. So they put me in that closet and, um, that was the start of everything. And I remember being in that space and feeling like, like, like I'm, I'm, I'm coming back from war and you're yeah. back with your family and you're, yeah. everything is settled and being in that space and feeling so much love and so much connection because the whole model was, it was this like peer to peer kind of process. They had counselors peer to peer. So they had like phase one, phase two, phase two um, supported phase one. Phase one, you weren't allowed to have like cell phones or any distractions. You had a six o'clock curfew. And in that program, um, I, I just learned so much on how to be a man, how to be a person that is um, willing to do the deeper work, a person that is willing to give back to others because I was so selfish mm. the entire time. Like it was always this really negative, selfish perspective. Yeah, alcoholism life. changes the shape of your brain. You probably know a lot more of this, but makes you more selfish and immature mm-hmm. because of what it does to your brain. I don't yeah. know if it's inflammation or what, but... Who knows, right? Yeah, <laughs> I've heard that alcoholism create or addiction creates a thinking disorder, specifically mm-hmm. alcoholism. But anyway. Oh, yeah. Wow. So they, they kind of phase you in gradually to what you can handle and you get more like yeah. rights and freedom as yeah. you progress. Yeah, exactly. And you got to it's a 12 step program. So you go to a meeting every single night, get a sponsor. You have to be done with the steps within 90 days. Um, and that's always interesting, too, because the way they, they structured their program, um, viewing it from a disease perspective mm-hmm. um, of how addiction and alcoholism affects the brain. Mm-hmm. Um, going through that process, they would talk about, they would teach to us about, you know, um, like the frontal cortex mm-hmm. and when it goes back online and, and, you know, and all this different stuff. And they, they, they would talk about how even the chip system applies to how pause shows up in your early recovery. Um, how oh pause, pause like post acute withdrawal symptoms oh post um, okay syndrome yeah, yeah. post acute withdrawal symptoms, symptoms or syndrome okay something like that okay. I can't remember yeah, yeah. Um, but it was it was such a powerful and a spiritual experience for me to be there and up to this point like I had considered myself a complete atheist and I had some powerful experiences in that program that completely changed me. Wow. They woke me up to something different. And um, one of the experiences specifically, I was literally asking God for a sign, like if you're real and this is where I'm supposed to be, I need a sign. And boom, I had this like powerful experience that um, it felt like a river was flowing through me of like energy and love and like connection. I felt frozen in my bed. And I had this like burning bush experience um, mm. in my bed and treatment. And and at the time, I didn't know much about that. But I found out later on that the guy, Bill Wilson, that created the pro, um, 12-step program mm-hmm. had that same kind of experience. And then Carl Jung um, had documented for like thousands of years that there was these like white light experiences that, you know, alcoholics and drug addicts would have. And sometimes that was like their only hope. Um, wow. And I had had one of these experiences. And 
from that, and that's where like I'm transitioning into my like journey into doing the work that I do because one of the things that came from that experience was that I knew that I was supposed to work in this industry and I was supposed to help people. And the craziest thing about it was during that period, I would have reoccurring dreams of working in this field, speaking to a lot of people, you know, about mental health and addiction. Mm. And, um, and then, and then other people and mentors that would come into my life would have the same kind of dreams about me. Um, which is kind of like a little freaky, you know, when you think about it, but, um, I'm open to all possibilities. So I just said, okay, this is a pretty unique experience. I'm going to allow it to unfold. Um, and it was wild because people would go out of their way to help me, um, help me with my first job. And I was, I started my, um, started to become an addiction counselor and, um, these people that were in class are like, I don't know why, but I just really want to help you. And, wow. and one of the instructors came to me and they were like, Hey, I had this dream about us, um, doing something. And I wanted to talk to you about starting a sober living. Um, and I was like, wow, that's so wild because like I've been having these dreams for a period of time. And, um, so amazing. <laughs> yeah, it was very, very interesting. And, a lot of these situations would happen and then they would fall through. Um, but the same guy that got me my first job at that hospital, it was a mental health hospital. Uh-huh. He had the same dream about me. He, he was like, man, I had this wild dream that you were like running all these facilities and doing all wow. this like work. And I'm like, man, that's so weird that it keeps on like happening. And, um, every time there was like a huge transition in my career and I had this like fear of like, oh, what am I going to do? Like, um, I remember that hospital went under a new like management and they were cutting all the staff. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was a PRN. So we were the first ones, part-time people to get cut. And I'm like, holy crap, what am I going to do? Mm. <laughs> so every single time I would have these like really powerful moments where somebody would come into my life and, and it's like the, I, I look at it, it's like the hero's journey, like mm-hmm. Joseph Campbell's hero's mm-hmm. journey. And I would have these like very big challenges and obstacles And somebody would come into my life and speak truth to me. And it would just like wake me up to this. And literally the same week I'd have like, I thought all my jobs were falling out. I didn't have any more hours. I'm like freaking out. And then boom, another job would come the same week. Like once again, an intrusive thought would come in Mm -hmm. like this one time where um, I didn't know what I was going to do. Both places were cutting hours. And I had this intrusive thought to check out this program called Rivermint. And, and it was just like, why is it there? And I couldn't shake it. So I called my mentor, Mark Pimsler, and he reached out to, um, the, the executive director. And he's like, you know, that's crazy that you're calling right now because we are hiring a recovery coach. Um, we just haven't gone live with it because we're opening a new program in Marietta, Georgia, literally right down the street from where I live. Kind of like (laughs) an intrusive thoughts, just a quick side note. We typically in, you know, the psychology field, Think of that with obsessive compulsive okay, disorder. Intuitive thoughts. Okay, no, but it is intrusive though in a way, but it's a good intrusion. Yeah. A good intrusion, like it's not an imaginary like, what if I, you know, the reason I tripped on the stairs because someone in my family is going to have a car accident. Mm-hmm. Like that's an intrusive, disturbing thought that's not real, but an intrusive. Yeah like inspired thought yeah. or something like that. It, I like the word intrusive, but um, just something that popped into your head that you think this is so random yeah. or people might've said, I'm going to feel weird to tell Sean I dreamed about him. Yeah. This yeah. was so yeah. random. You're running these facilities, but yet that was how God was speaking to you mm-hmm. and confirming even amidst the, yes. the obstacles and the letdowns, it kept mm-hmm. happening randomly from all over. Oh yeah randomly all over consistently even to this day even more to this day actually wow. like spiritual teachers coming into my life like i don't it's it's weird it's weird like it's kind of interesting well sometimes. no i've experienced <laughs> some things like that um and heard some really cool stories and i want to see how much time we have because i'd love to oh, share yeah. one of them but i don't i want you to get to be yeah. able to share yeah. how do you know what time it is this phone's um, not lighting up oh is it <laughs> nothing is what's going on <laughs> Um, it's 11.53. Okay. So so we probably only have 10 more okay. minutes. Um, yeah. Well, maybe I should save it. <laughs> I'll have some cool stories of either things that popped into my head in mm-hmm. a session where I'm like, 
this strange thought just popped into my mind and it was like really like mind blowing to the person that I was talking Mm to. Um, And then stories of people that had like after life types of like experiences where, um, you know, someone they knew died and someone came and said, I had this dream about, I don't know what this means. And they didn't know what it meant. And then when they spelled it out, another person had a dream or something and Mm -hmm. and it made the whole thing make sense. So, no, it's, it's very interesting. So I believe in all that stuff. Um, I think it's powerful. I think the universe, God tries to communicate with us in interesting ways. Yeah. And if we're open to it, um, the message will come through. I agree. Yeah. I, I was thinking earlier, God works in mysterious ways when, and, and that people might think it's terrible for me to say this, but I think it's true. Like God used the mushrooms. He yeah. used that psychedelic yeah. thing for you to help mm-hmm. you. And so don't, God will do what he has to do. And um, I love that that director, whatever his name is, I love him for mm-hmm. opening that closet. That yeah. is a very godly yeah. thing to do, and I love right. it. And he continues to open up space for me. Um, I, it's it's amazing. It's it's just he has an this office. man, yeah. Aww. So like I, I use his office to coach personal clients. So that's something I do on the side. Is he still in Atlanta? Yeah, yeah he's still in there. Aww. He's going to marry us. He's an ordained minister. Oh, so you're engaged? Well. Yeah. Oh so my I'm goodness. <laughs> So, um, but yeah, so the journey has just been powerful. And um, I started on my journey becoming a counselor, got all these different credentials, um, became an experiential specialist, anger resolution specialist. And then during that time, I got pulled into the business side. Mm-hmm. And a mentor said, you're really good at this stuff, but they're probably going to pull you into the business side because that's what they do in this field. <laughs> ah. and, and that's what they did. And then somebody put me into a business development position for a large treatment center did that for a lot of years. And um, then I moved to another, a bigger organization, um, big corporate um, company. And um, during that time, I was trying to create something because I wanted to do my own thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had all these different opportunities where people were trying to come to me and support me and, and invest in me. And um, But it would always fall through. But every single time I was able to figure out what was needed, what was needed in the community, what did I believe in, how to you know who aligns with me because that was a big thing because, your philosophy because if i don't align if i'm not in alignment with the investor or the partners um it's going to create challenges down mm-hmm. the road and i need to have that free creative ability to turn to create what i wanted to create yeah if you partnered with someone that wouldn't let you use the storage room for extra space if you had to that exactly. might not fit exactly exactly so um, during this time as working in the business development, I started to generate, create like um, financial plans, pitch decks, designing a program, the type of program I wanted, started researching numbers and, and just collecting everything that I could. And I found that I found this mentor um, that was absolutely phenomenal. And during this time, I'm back in school because I switched back and, and I was like, I'm going to go into business school so I can get my business degree and I can um, run businesses. Yeah, be a CEO. Side. Yeah, be a CEO. So during this time, I'm meeting with this guy and he's one of the most successful guys I've ever met and he's magnetic. Like he's just, everything he touches turns to gold. Mm. And so he's been a really helpful being in my life. Once again, these people mm-hmm. come into my life and I'm like, Wow, like, and they show a lot of interest in me. And I'm like, why are you so interested in me? <laughs> yeah, well, people like you didn't get almost any mentoring before age 18 or maybe mm-hmm. 25. Yeah. And I love it when that is, I call it payback or, you know, you know, just kind of you owe yourself a lot of, you know, replacement work. And so all these mentors coming out of the woodwork. Yeah. I yeah. love it. So he was the one that guided me on how to, um, to to create it and put it out there he said he told me that he said he said one of the most powerful tools that you're ever going to use is the power of belief Mm. he said you have to think about it believe it you have to understand it feel it connect to it and put in the work to make it happen Mm. he said that's how you create your journey but it starts with the power of belief and i was like okay this is a little different than what i've ever like approached something Mm -hmm. so he made me he said one thing is Everything that you create on the outside is a direct reflection of the inside. Mm. He said that you always have to make a sacrifice to to take on new. And a lot of times he said the sacrifice is something that's negative. It's a negative habit, a negative belief system. Mm-hmm. It's a negative 
approach to something that's personal, that's internal. Um, so he said that we want, he want, he was like, we're going to do a little bit of work. So he made me do these things where I was like literally exercising, um, like a 40 minute exercise in the morning, one in the evening. Um, I had to write down my, my, my chief goal in life of what I wanted morning and night exactly what I wanted every single day. Mm. I had to do a gratitude list and a prayer and a meditation. I had to read at least minimum of 10 pages of a book and listen to a podcast every single day. Oh, and wow. He, ha- I, he said, I need, he said, we're going to start out with a month and then we're going to go from there. So that was like the personal sacrifice was jumping into all these healthy habits. And wow. he, he had me do it for like, I ended up doing it for like seven months until I finally burned out on it. And I was just like done. And like during that time, I was actually able to like, I was going to create, I had somebody that was going to invest in the program and it fell through again. Mm. So I just said like, okay, whatever. Like God doesn't want me to do it right now. I'm just going to continue on. And then I went on to become a yoga and meditation teacher. Another six months of really intense training. Yes. Doing like really deep practices, reflection, meditation the entire time, morning and night. Um, doing all these stuff with like teachers, swamis and monks and stuff like that. And um, I was doing all this deep work and I was just like after that six months and then the six months before I did all that mm-hmm. work, I was so burnt out on doing my own Self-growth. Work. I was done <laughs> It's with a little it. exhausting. I was done with it, but I had stopped looking for investors and partners and everything like that. And then all of a sudden they reached out to me, some wow. d- a different group of people. Somebody threw my name in the pot they had reached out to me. They said, hey, I want to meet with y'all. We have this guy that wants to do something in Chattanooga. Um, and I was like, okay, let's meet. And I went and met with them. I aligned with them. But the guy decided to back out. And I'm like, okay, here we are. But the other guy that was that was doing it was, I guess, impressed with what I was doing. And they decided to move forward anyways. And then they wow. ended up getting another partner um, uh-huh. that, you know, I, I think is great. And these, and these people have another facility in Georgia. Hmm. So this is the second one. And that's where Iris wellness group was formed. Um, and it just came out of nowhere. It came out of thin air. And then, um, hmm. so I started last year, actually around this time doing the planning. Um, and then we started in January building it, found the office up here and, um, you know, we're on mountain Creek road and it's the, the building that I found was, um, such a powerful building i found out that it was like yoga instructors there um holistic psychiatrists were there wow. like so it's been a healing center the entire time and you could feel the energy in the space neat yeah so i i knew it was the space so when i was developing iris wellness group the one thing that i wanted to do was a robust treatment approach something that was more like um more robust more um clinical than most and more holistic than most yeah. of the programs that i had worked for and that i had experienced in the past Ooh. Right? so you so, wanted to get all the best from all your former treatment but then exactly. add a little bit of extra add a little yoga the meditation yeah, wonderful sprinkle that in on it love so, it um so what we did was um i i wanted to create a, a three-track system so we have a primary substance abuse track. Mm-hmm. We have a primary mental health track, mm-hmm. and then we have an adolescent track for co-occurring disorders. Mm. Um, and by and, co-occurring, you mean maybe addiction and mental health yes, issues? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, addiction and mental health. And as we were forming it, um, I, I found you know some really good people. My fian- I mean, I'm surrounded by therapists, and mm-hmm. I have all my experience. Um, my mentors, he's the, he's the, he created the International Society of Experiential Professionals. He used to work for Onsite for a long time and mm. he does a lot of like really deep work. So like I've been trained under him. I've been trained under these different modalities and processes. Um, and I was just like, you know, I want to do something that is holistic experiential, but it's trauma focused. Mm. So we created this trauma focused program about um, reaching the core of the individual because a lot of people don't really, when they think about trauma, they're like, Mm -hmm. Oh, you know, it's just, um, sexual or verbal, you know, or physical abuse, but it's so much more than that. Mm -hmm. Um, it could be, I mean, COVID-19 was a traumatic experience for everybody. So, um, we have to look at trauma in a different way instead of like, looking at it through this lens of those three things. Yeah, the classic stereotypes are so important to understand, but there's a lot of subtle traumas or yeah. chronic traumas that people mm-hmm. overlook. Yeah. Oh, I'm so glad yeah. you incorporate that. Um, <laughs> yeah. 
well, I, now I'm kind of mad at myself for yeah. spending five minutes eating fruit instead of yeah. talking to you that yeah. extra five minutes. <laughs> um, so maybe just could you tell us how, and I'm, I'm seeing from your, your handout or your track pamphlet, whatever you brochure, <laughs> um, that the adolescents age 13 to 17. Yes. And then I love that you have the addiction track, the mental health track, and then you can do the co-occurring kind Mm -hmm. of stuff. Um, So I assume, do you all have, well, your website info at iriswellnessgroup.com. Yes. Do you have sort of like a free consultation or something? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So we we do free consultations, free assessments. People can call our number. Um, it's mm-hmm. on there. Yeah, four two three five four one zero six five six. Yes, and so you can call. We accept most major insurances, um, self pay rates. We do sliding scales. Um, it's treatment. So we're we're PHP, which is partial hospitalization program, uh-huh. and intensive outpatient programming. So we so offer. So it's not overnights. No, so no overnights. We do group therapy, individual therapy case management, we even do med management. And um, wonderful. Yeah, we do a lot of different things. And um, our, like I said, our trauma-focused program, we have an EMDR therapist on each each level of care. Oh, good. Yeah, DBT therapist. Um, our curriculum is, is really stacked. Um, it's, it sounds it's, like it. Yeah, it's, it's a phenomenal program, but we do breath work, yoga, meditation, mm. experiential exercises, art therapy, um, and of course, process group, educational groups, coping wow. skills. We, we, we hit all the evidence-based stuff, but we really do a strong emphasis on the holistic approach, uh-huh. which I think makes us different with yeah. the, the energy in the space, with the, um, the really just a heart-centered practice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it sounds amazing. And the philosophy sounds so in line with my philosophies and on treating people and incorporating trauma and having them be holistic. Um, I have an episode called life changing habits. That's just a short episode about, you know, if you're not doing these like six or eight things in general, you're probably not going to feel great Mm -hmm. or you're probably not going to have the best ideal mental health. So why not try those things before you know, you necessarily jump on medication. I'm mm-hmm. not anti-medication, I but I've, I've, I've seen people that made more of a transformation from like vitamin B12 or vitamin D3 than they did on antidepressant. Yeah. So it's sort of like, or an ADD medication, you know, so just mm-hmm. make sure you're not missing some major basics before you yeah. jump to, you know, I agree. I agree. I'm all about that. <laughs> yeah, I can tell. Yeah. Um, well, I wish we had a little more time, but um, I think at least we gave people your website and your phone number and here in Chattanooga, Tennessee on Mountain Creek Road. Mm-hmm. And again, the website is info at iriswellnessgroup.com. And I'll put that in the text yeah. on our podcast. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.